coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. The breakdown on the bicycle SSL attack, the real story behind Brian Krebs' PayPal account getting hacked, and the scoop on the Juniper saga. Then it's a great big batch of your questions, our answers, a news-breaking roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on January 7th, 2016. How about that? This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ding, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Oh, our live stream? Well, that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. You should go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Well, hey there, Alan. Oh, sorry, Alan, I had you muted. Hey there, Alan. Oh, hi. <laughs> I was letting you chew before we started. <laughs> yes, thank you. Alan, Alan gave himself, uh, he's very considerate as a, as a podcast co-host. He, he, wanted to mint, he wanted to freshen up his breath before we started, so he had chocolatey mints. Alan, uh, mm-hmm. first of all, it's exciting to be here for our first Tech Snap of 2016. Yeah, so, uh, it's been a couple of weeks. Yeah. It's the longest time I've gone without doing a Tech Snap. Yeah, yeah. and uh, we've done so many of them that I don't feel like we, we miss a beat. Like, it's just, nope. it's old hat. Uh, so speaking of that, actually, we were just sort of uh, commiserating during the show that uh, we have some crazy travel coming up uh, mm-hmm. because uh, I'm leaving for scale towards the end of January. And then just after that, is it Asia BSDCon you're going to? Well, uh, so I'm going to FOSDEM, which is the week after scale. Oh, okay. Uh Actually, I thought they were even closer than they actually are. Uh, they're like opposite uh, consecutive weekends, but I thought mm. scale was actually during the week prior. And, uh, yeah, scale is the 21st yeah. or the 24th. Right, and I thought it was a little bit later than that. But yeah, I, I leave for uh, FOSDEM on the 28th. So uh, so when I'm getting yeah. back, you'll be leaving. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and well, in particular, the part of the reason I didn't end up going to scale is because I would have basically had to fly directly from the one to the <laughs> yeah. other. Yeah, there's that. So uh, we're going to do a TechSnap double recording next week, and we'd love to have you join us live because it's great to have uh, the live chat room. But also, with the holiday slowdown, we don't have a ton of questions in the inbox. We're going to get through some of them today, but we need more questions. So you have a good chance to get yes. your question answered on the show if you go over to the contact page and choose TechSnap from the dropdown. That's jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. Choose TechSnap from the dropdown and put your question in. Storage, networking, security, infrastructure, uh, application level, we'll take them all. Uh, just ask, and uh, it's a great chance. Also, techsnap.reddit.com for content and uh, uh, um, questions there are also welcome. Mm-hmm. Okay, Alan. Uh, the chat room would like to point out that the date in the uh, lower third is wrong. <gasps> I says 15. Oh, you know what? Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll sneakily fix that. Hey, that's cool. That's, uh, yeah. that's, I, had to, I had to do one show. I barely did on Filter last night, so it had to happen, Alan. It's, it's, uh-huh. It had to happen. And, you know, and, of course, Rikai has been Johnny on the spot with uh, the credits, Getting mm-hmm. every show, and there's been he almost. Be in code oh, I wasn't going to call him out. I wasn't going to call him out. <laughs> but he, but he did it. He caught it. Yeah, he I, caught I it. I would have just shipped it, <laughs> as you could see from the uh, lower third below. As would I. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, while you tell us about our but first more story, I, I think you should be beaten for using that weird ass date format. But anyway. Oh really? Why? <laughs> it's always what it's, we've used. It's always year dash month. I know you say 248 weeks into it, and now you say something. <laughs> I don't watch the show. <laughs> you see, okay, oh, fine. You've only had the return feed okay. working sometimes. Yeah, okay, all right, fine, fine. All right, well, you tell us about our first story, and I will fix the okay. lower third. 
So our first big story uh, is the bicycle attack. Dun, dun, dun. Wow. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so security researcher uh, Guido Vranken uh, has published a new attack that affects all versions of SSL and TLS. Uh, hmm. He says, uh, while the sound configuration of both endpoints of a connection is understood to prevent the decoding of the ciphertext to plain text without having access to the private keys, transactions conducted over a channel embedded in uh, TLS leak various types of information. So when you set up an encrypted connection between you and your bank or whatever, uh, it's encrypted. And we understand that that means that no one can get back the plain text from it. However, there might be other information they can gain just by looking at the encrypted text, like seeing the timing of, all right, so you went to this page and then you sat there for a little while and typed in your username and password and then you sent a thing that was slightly bigger than a normal request and that's probably because it got your username and password in it. And then you got a response from the website and then we see a bunch of, you know, downloading the little images for the website and the CSS files and then here's, you know, that uh, transaction there is probably you getting your bank statement and there's the second page of it or whatever. Uh, or, you know, if you're chatting on IRC, it's pretty obvious, all right, that was you sending a message and that was you getting a message and so on. Right, okay. Yeah, that's pretty clear. Yeah. Um, and so there's a, you know, a lot of research has been formed on how to stack up these different knowns in order to meticulously reconstruct the user's actions. Uh, given that the encrypted streams are known uh, to an observer who is or has been listening on the secure transmission between the two endpoints. Uh-huh. Uh, so the general idea is because we know certain things about what's going on here, we can, you know, make guesses or, or jump to... There's certain, logical, there's certain logical leaps you can make based on observing the user, essentially. Well, in, in particular, if you happen to know that they're going to a website because it's port 443 or whatever, yeah. then you can assume that the first chunk of the encrypted communications is an HTTP request in headers or an HTTP response in headers. And that HTTP always looks like this, right? It's, mm-hmm. a, well, it's, a, it's a protocol. We know that it's yeah. always going to be laid out like that. Right. I've seen that a million times. Mm-hmm. So uh, in this paper, the author will show uh, that for a presumably large subset of web applications, uh, it's easy to infer the length of parts of the plain text or certain attributes of it from a recorded stream of encrypted messages. So just by watching you, the message going back and forth, we can tell how long certain fields uh, in that might be. Okay, okay. Having access to the private key is not necessary. In fact, the actual ciphertext embedded in the stream is completely irrelevant to the deduction and simple entry-level arithmetic suffices. I could probably manage that, Alan. Where'd yeah, you could... find that picture of the... <laughs> The register found that. Yeah, the register found that. That's awesome. I I thought so too. (laughs) Uh, So this basically, uh, the attack can allow a passive listener to determine the length of your password uh, just by sniffing the encrypted connection. Hmm. And by knowing exactly how long your password is, that significantly reduces the effort required to brute force crack your password. Yeah, no kidding. Because if your password could be, you know, any of 95 characters... Uh, and it could be 10 or 11 or 12 or 13 or 14 or 15 characters long, that's a lot of permutations to try. Mm-hmm. But if you know for a fact that the password is exactly 12 characters long, you've basically just cut the search space down by huge orders Dramatic. of yeah. Huh. You know, you have like 95 possible characters to the power of 10 would give you all the possible combinations for 10 characters plus all that to 11, plus all that to 12, and so on, from basically from the minimum to the maximum password mm-hmm. length. Uh, 
Whereas if you know for a fact it's a certain number of characters long, then you can do quite a bit with that. So the attack uh, takes advantage of the known characteristics of HTTP transactions, uh, although it can be used against other protocols and for things other than passwords. We'll cover that a bit more. Uh, But it can basically determine the length of a specific field. So in a regular HTTP form post, like not an encrypted one, but when you basically submit a form on a website, uh, it does a regular HTTP transaction with the regular headers and a post, but the data section is basically just URL encoded string. So it's like, you know, username equals Allen and password equals correct horse battery staple and and then whatever the name of your submit button is in your most basic simple form, right? Uh, so when the form is submitted over an encrypted connection, you know, HTTPS, that text is invisible because it's encrypted. However, the length of the whole packet is known, right? It's one of the headers in the SSL part because to decrypt it, you need to know where it ends. Um, And so by knowing how long the entire encrypted message is, and if we know how long the message would be if it didn't include the username and password, right? We know what what all the other um, uh, fields are. Yeah. Then we can basically just subtract, Right, so if we know, yeah, if, okay. If a packet, if a login sent with a username that's eight characters and a password that's ten characters is sent, and it adds up to you know one hundred and twenty-three, then one with a password one character longer is going to be one block, one byte longer in the encrypted version. Now, this depends on using a stream cipher instead of a block cipher, where it's padded to chunks of like sixteen bytes at a time. But anyway, Uh But if the length of the form field names, like the actual name of the box where you type your username and password is known, and the target's username is known, then the only variable left in that whole transaction is the length of the password. And so that's all it takes to figure out how long your password is. Hmm. Uh, So the attack kind of requires a bit of knowledge about the target. Like ideally you'd want to know their username. But if you're the NSA and you're targeting someone, you know, you know what their Twitter username is or right. their Gmail account name. Right. It's their email address or yeah. you know, their username. It's usually, you, you presumably, it's not usually you, secret. You presumably have eliminated a lot of the variables because you're probably targeting a specific site, service, right. something. Uh, yeah. So this, this basically requires knowing the site fairly well and having visited it yourself and measured what the fields are. And, mm-hmm. uh, it also... Uh, one of the complications in the headers that get sent from the user along with their password is their browser user agent string, mm. oh. which would be different for depending on what plugins they have, what version of the browser they have, all that. Um, but if you are passively listening to the user's internet connection, if you happen to see them go to any not encrypted site, you would get that information very easily. Mm. Uh, and even if you don't know it exactly, if you can get a big enough sample of them going to web pages you know about, you can, you know, it's like, I know the request for this is always this long, uh, and theirs was this long, so it means their user agent string maybe was four characters longer than mine, or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. The paper gets into more detail about how it actually works. Um, so, yeah, the, the attack requires knowing a bit about the user, but for a targeted attack, that's really not that hard. Yeah. Um, the other obvious wildcard is like the length of the cookie field. But if you can just intercept them loading something like an image or a CSS file off that website, that cookie is sent there too. Uh. And just by comparing the difference between your version of it and their version of it, huh. you get what you need in order to, to figure out what it would be. Hmm. And uh, 
so yeah, and then once you know exactly how long their password is, it's a lot easier to uh, to start working on cracking it, or yeah, even yeah. just compare it to a dictionary of known passwords or something. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. Like if they're like some people, then they reuse the same password for a lot of sites. Right. So if you know they have these ten possible passwords, right? But if we try to log into this website and get it wrong three times, we're going to get blocked. So we're not just going to try guess all ten. Yeah. What we'll do is look at the thing and find out how long the password they're using for that site is, and then it's easy to find it on our list. Uh, The other thing is because of the nature of the attack, it also works against previously recorded sessions. So if you're the Mm, NSA and you recorded every encrypted session that this person has for the last couple of years, you can use this attack to go back and look at old ones. Uh, The complication there is, is maybe the website's changed, and so it'll be slightly different. And obviously, their browser sure. string will change every so What about so possibly employers capturing at the firewall level and then going yep. back and... Lots of stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, and they mentioned here that it may uh, also be executed on a larger scale using a Tor exit node or VPNs or proxies or other internet traffic conduits in order to detect weak or short passwords susceptible to brute force or an attack based on a dictionary of often used passwords. This sounds like something law enforcement would love to do if they got mm-hmm. their hands on an important couple of Tor exit nodes. Yeah. Huh. Uh, there's also a nice explanation of why it's called the bicycle attack. I was going to ask, yeah. So there's a, it basically said, so, you know, if you get a bicycle for Christmas and it's wrapped up and it's under the Christmas tree, <laughs> yeah. it's still pretty obvious that it's a bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, okay. Just because you wrapped it up in encryption, you could still tell that that is a bicycle. You know what? I'll go with it. Good enough for me. That's, that's right? pretty good. And it's like, you know, he only named it because it makes it easier to talk about. Uh, and, you know. That's the part I kind of do agree about. At least he didn't make a logo for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm sure somebody will, though. Although the register was working on something. I just don't know if they quite nailed it. I think they got close. but uh, <laughs> that, that doesn't really say bicycle to me, but that no. does. I love that just by, you know, it's just black boxes going across the Internet. But yeah. we can just tell that there's passwords in there. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good metaphor. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Uh, so the paper also talks a little bit about what you could do to try to mitigate this. Mm. Like including uh, some random data in the, every post that's a different size, hmm. so that uh, it hides the length of the password. Hmm. But like you know, if you just use a random sized padding, then uh, extra field, then if I just get a large enough sample, I can figure out the range of those padding and probably narrow it down anyway. And you know, if I watch you log in five times and notice the differences, I can eventually figure out um, how long your password actually is still. So then it was like, well, what we could do is in JavaScript or something, after you type in your password, when you hit submit, it would actually pad your password out with null bytes or something all the way to, say, 1,000 characters. And then, you know, the password field that actually gets submitted will always be 1,000 characters, but the server on the other side knows everything, bef- you know, only consider up to the first null byte and then ignore the rest. Mm. Uh, although it's uh, curious to see what some applications would do if you started sending null bytes in the passwords. Yeah, yeah, that probably would take some uh, troubleshooting. Uh, then the paper goes on to describe how you could do this for other things, uh, like GPS coordinates. Just because they're encrypted, but just by knowing their length, you can guesstimate where in the world that could possibly be. If you have the PDF open, they have some uh, maps where they kind of visualize what it looks like. Mm, okay, It's like if the uh, number of characters in the GPS coordinate is this many, that means it has to be in this little square in Africa. I think I did see that. Or, or like yeah. Zero, zero happens yeah. to be. Yeah. yeah. I'll, uh, I'll zoom in a little bit before I pull it up. Or if, if it doesn't have at least this many characters, then it's definitely not over here in Antarctica. 
Yeah, so there's if it's if the number of characters is exactly two, uh, then it has to be right there in Africa. Mm. And if it's three, then it could be anywhere in there that's not that little block in Africa. Mm. Right? And then you scroll down, it's like if you happen to know that it's four, then it could be any one of these places. So it's you know, Europe, but definitely not North America. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh and you know, that right there could tell you enough to, to be interesting. That would definitely be very helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it does the same thing for IP addresses. If you had IPv4 addresses and they're encrypted, just by knowing how many characters are in the address, you can reduce the possible addresses that it could be. Mm. You know, if it's exactly seven characters long, then it's only, you know, 0.000023% of the address space happens to be, you know, four single digits, right? Uh, and if it's even, you know, mm. 10 characters long, so one... Uh, with three and one with two and two with one or whatever, they show the different possible combinations there. That's still only 1% of all possible IP addresses. Right? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, as you get to the certain, the, the more common numbers, it's 31%. But mm. right? just by knowing the length, you automatically know that it's, that you're already down to 31% of the possible addresses. Hmm. See, right there. Yeah. Uh, and if it's 12 characters, that's only 16%. And so if it's, you know, if you know how long the IP address is, you've just narrowed down the possibilities a lot. Right. And you can probably also eliminate a bunch just because that one's not used or that one's only used in China, right? So, uh, yeah, if you know, further. If you know the, the, like, even just the first set of digits of the IP address and then know the length, you've now eliminated down to a very small possible set to know who that is. Yeah. That's not so bad. Mm hmm. So this is a very interesting attack. And, uh, it's, you know, it's not really a bug. It's just the way it works. Yeah, I wonder, you know, when you, when you see research like this, you think to yourself, I bet there's teams that work for the NSA that's already figured stuff like this out a long time ago. And now we're yeah. just kind of catching up. Well, uh, you know, in particular, this only works with stream ciphers uh, where, you know, adding one byte to the input adds one byte to the output. Mm-hmm. Now, the input and the output aren't necessarily always the same size because you can meet some overhead, but the sizes do correlate. Whereas with a block cipher, there's padding and it's always uh, an even number, like 16, always divisible by 16 bytes. And the paper points out too that if you hash before transmission, like using some JavaScript in the browser, so that way right. the password was hashed locally. Yeah, before so if you, if you uh, don't send the password but a hash of the password, then everybody's password is going to be the same length. Yeah. Uh, the problem with that is, on the other side, you don't actually want to know the real password. Right. Right. You want to only have a hash, and yeah. it gets a little more complicated. Yeah, yeah, it does. Interesting, Alan. Any other thoughts on that story? Uh, no, that's about it for that one. Uh, and the full paper will be linked in the show notes, which is pretty cool reading. Thanks, Alan, for breaking that down. The bicycle attack. I'm glad they didn't try to backronym it something crazy. You know, that would have been really painful. This would have been, just would have been gritting my teeth. Let me take it's a like moment. Side channel le- length leaking yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was trying to think what the, the B would be for, but I, I don't know. Back, you could just say backronym with the B. Let me tell you about uh, our friends over at IX Systems. Back for 2016. That's great. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. Go go land there to learn more about ix systems get yourself a great white paper to help grease the wheels up the chain and also to support the show let them know you heard about it here by hitting that page ixsystems.com slash techsnap ix systems build systems for open source solutions there are all kinds of different solutions that are bsd powered linux powered true nas and free nas powered uh just recently on the on the linux unplugged show 
Uh, Wimpy was telling us a story about uh, some seriously high-end deployments that they've used for, with TrueNAS from mm-hmm. IX Systems. I guess they are just huge advocates now. They heard about it here on the TechSnap program, talked to us about it, and be, they became extremely happy IX Systems customers. I think a lot of you out there have, and that's why IX Systems is back for 2016. They have really, really great A support, fantastic engineers, great connections to the hardware and open source community. And you know what else? I'm excited to get to say I get to say hi to some of them down at scale coming up in just a little bit in Pasadena. Uh, and if you check over on their blog, I don't know if you noticed them. You probably did. They've posted their 10 most read articles of 2015. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lots of ZFS in there. Yeah, there is a lot of free NAS in there, too. Also, we just happened to have interviewed an IX employee on BSD Now this week. Oh, yeah? Uh, Josh Petzl came back mm. to tell us more about... Uh, Supporting ZFS in the field and actually just doing support stuff for IX with all the customers yeah. running, you know, free NAS and true NAS. Uh, some cool stories about uh, ZFS and also uh, demystifying that post they, uh, that he wrote up about uh, being careful using ZFS inside a VM. Oh. Actually explaining that and yeah, answering some of the questions details. people had about that. Hmm. Yeah, it's going to be a huge year for ZFS. Uh, and it's going to be a Especially huge year for IX. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and for IX, it's going to be like they're in the they're in the perfect position. They've got the experts. They've been shipping it now for a long time. They work with the community. They, I mean, they've got some of they've really got some of the best staff to work and back up a company like this. So they're going to really kick it in 2016. I'm excited to see them down at scale. And you can go see them over at ixsystems.com/techsnap. Support this show and visit IX Systems. We've tried all the different hardware vendors over the years. These are really the ones. ixsystems.com mm-hmm. slash techsnap. Thanks, IX. Also check out ixsystems.com slash mission complete. Uh, write in your story about how you used ZFS or open source or FreeBSD or whatever to uh, complete a mission, and uh, you could win their monthly contest. Yeah, and we always like seeing TechSnap or BSD Now audience members mm-hmm. uh, in that. That's, that's pretty great. All also, right. if you're more the artistic type, uh, they have the FreeNAS logo contest, which oh, is going yeah. on until January 20th. That would be epic. Uh, you could be the designer of the next logo for the free NAS. And if you win that, then contact us because we want new frames and logos integrated. We want a new look for TechSnap <laughs> for 2016. So if, if you've got, you got extra time. Well, uh, good news. Krebs on Security's website is up and online for oh, our nice. next story. Uh, it's been a rough week for his website. Uh, mm-hmm. So good to see it's up for the TechSnap show. What's going on over at Krebs, Alan? Uh, yeah, so I titled this story, uh, Merry Christmas, We Stole Your PayPal Account. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was a good one. <laughs> I was surprised to say, I thought that was actually a Krebs title, but no, that was an Alan Jude original. <laughs> no, uh, Krebs was uh, reality, lazy authentication, still the norm. Yeah, not quite uh, as zippy. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, on Christmas Eve, uh, Krebs had his PayPal account stolen, which is exactly what you want to be dealing with on Christmas Eve, right? Yeah, boy. Yeah, I saw that. Oof. That's rough. Yeah, so uh, on the morning, uh, it says, uh, the perpetrator tried to further stir up trouble by sending my uh, my PayPal funds to a hacker gang tied to the jihadist militant group ISIS. Uh, although the uh, intruder failed to siphon any funds, uh, the successful takeover of the account speaks volumes about why most organizations, including many financial institutions, remain woefully behind the times in authenticating their customers and even staying ahead of identity thieves. Hmm. Uh, so he says, on Christmas Eve morning, I received an email from PayPal stating that my email address had been, or that a new email address had been added to my account. I immediately logged into the account from a pristine computer, uh, changed the password, switched my email address back to the primary contact address, and deleted the rogue email account. Oh man, he was in crisis mode. <laughs> 
he then called PayPal and asked how the perpetrator had gotten in and uh, was there anything else they could uh, do to prevent this from happening again. The customer service person at PayPal said the attacker had simply logged in with my username and password and that I had uh, done everything I could in response to the attack by changing the password and making sure all the email addresses were the right ones. Uh, the representative assured me that they uh, were, would monitor the account uh, for suspicious activity and that I could rest easy. Uh, 20 minutes later, I was outside exercising in the unseasonably warm weather uh, when I stopped briefly to check my email again. Sure enough, the very same rogue email address had been added back to my account. Uh, but by that time, uh, but by the time I got home to a computer, my email address had been removed and oh my boy. password had been changed. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, so much for PayPal's supposed monitoring. The company wouldn't even spot the same fraudulent email address when it was added a second time. In my second call to PayPal, I insisted on speaking with a supervisor. That person was able to tell me that, as I suspected, my very long and complex password was never really compromised. The attacker merely called into PayPal customer support, pretended to be me, and was able to reset my password by providing nothing more than the last four digits of my social security number and the last four digits of an old credit card account. Mm. <laughs> you know, let's Probably leave aside for a moment. Closed for a while, but left on file at PayPal because who goes up and cleans all that stuff up, right? Well, yeah. even if you delete it, they still have it so that they can ask you about it. Oh, uh-huh. and this is, let's leave aside for a moment the reality that almost all this static information about Brian Krebs has been posted online by various miscreants over the years and probably still remains online. Any company that authenticates customers with nothing more than static identifiers, such as address, social security number, date of birth, phone number, credit card number, etc., is vulnerable to these takeover attempts. I asked the PayPal supervisor why the company couldn't simply verify my identity by sending a text message to my phone or a simple, uh, a special signal to the PayPal mobile app. After all, PayPal has the same mobile number of mine on file for many years. Uh, the attacker also deleted that number from my profile as well. Uh, the supervisor explained that the company did not have any mobile authentication technologies and that in order to regain access to my funds in my account, I had to send the company a photocopied or scanned copy of my driver's license. Hmm. Which, uh, you know, is not exactly something hard to fake. Uh, no. Especially since I don't think they check that carefully. Right? They look, oh, yep, that's him. Except, right? Uh, and Krebs even goes on to point out, hey, there's uh, online services where you can go to get fake scans of documents that look real but aren't uh, for anything, you know, passport, driver's license, all the stuff that banks and so on use. Uh, you can do it like that, right? Yep. Uh, so he says, uh, when I pressed the PayPal representative about whether he had any other ways to validate my identity short of sending a copy of my license, he offered uh, to do so using public records. Now, I understand what he actually meant uh, was that PayPal would work with a major credit bureau to ask me a series of out-of-wallet or knowledge-based authentication questions. So, like, Experian would have, like, yeah. a list of questions to ask him or something? Yeah. Essentially, uh, yet more requests for static information that could be gleaned from a variety of sources online. But that didn't stop me from playfully asking the perceptor why the security challenge would rely on answers from public records. Exactly. has like, how does it prove that it's me if it's from a public record that anybody could look up? Public record. It's public. <laughs> yeah, that's no good. Uh, it needs to be something that, somebody would be able to find online. Yes, uh, he responded that somebody would probably have to go down to a courthouse somewhere to do that, which made me laugh out loud and wish him a Merry Christmas. <laughs> like, do you really think the attacker is not going to go down to a courthouse to get that information to steal large sums of money or to screw over Brian Krebs? Yeah, yeah. It's it's not like he's just... These guys are not exactly unmotivated. <laughs> 
Right. Yeah. It's, Especially somebody like him could be a target. Yeah. Uh, special thing here. Krebs mentions that he's been using PayPal's two-factor authentication token since it was introduced. But apparently somehow that wasn't required for the bad guy to take over the account. Hmm. How that works, I'm not entirely sure. I remember covering a story a couple of years ago about how the PayPal mobile app just totally went around the two-factor authentication. But There must be other things that do as well. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, probably uh, when you phone them up, you can claim you lost the token and they will just disable it for you. Hmm. Which really makes it not very useful. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, so the other interesting thing is that a user in the comment points out that an ide- a dynamic identifier, such as temporary code sent via SMS to a user's phone, uh, isn't any better if the provider of the mobile service is also vulnerable to these type of attacks. Hmm. Uh, the user in the comments says he had his bank account emptied after a Vodafone UK allowed someone to walk in off the street to one of their stores and transfer his mobile number to a new Vodafone account in the store. Then use the compromised bank reset or whatever and transfer all the funds. And when the verification came to the phone, it was the attacker's phone that got the message for his phone number, not his own phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even if PayPal did want to use a mobile phone for it, it's possible that uh, they could have stolen Krebs' phone. Now, Krebs' phone company probably has a note on his files to not do this specifically because this has probably tried to happen to him before. But, uh, you know, Krebs goes on about talking about how he set up his uh, internet and utility bills and so on so that he has to actually go into their office and present physical ID and so on to get his account canceled so that his power would quit getting turned off. Hmm. You know, PayPal but there's is... uh, lots more in the story there. PayPal is in a unique position where uh, they are, they kind of scare me in some regards. They do kind of scare me because they don't have to follow some of the same rules that banks have to follow. Yep. Well, even the banks usually just rely on the same silliness. Uh, I the agree, main difference is your bank often is required to give you the money back after it's stolen. Yeah, this whereas, is Whereas uh, PayPal isn't. So uh, any other thoughts on that before we move on? Uh, not really, no. I know. It's interesting, you know, because you've dealt with PayPal security issues in the past, so. Yep. I uh, used to, you know, uh, before Scale Engine, my previous company was all PayPal. And uh, when I first started it up, you know, I was a little less experienced. And PayPal was a little less smooth. Yeah. Uh, and also, back then, I wasn't 18 yet, which complicated things greatly. Wow. Uh, but I had my account frozen to, for many months yeah. to the point where if about four days after it got unlocked... Uh, if it hadn't been unlocked, I would have gone out of business because I couldn't have paid for the server anymore yeah. out of my own pocket. And they'll routinely suspend uh, payments for review, uh, we find, yep. and things like that. So it can be difficult. Um, yep. As much as they are also very handy. So, Because uh, uh, Krebs actually talks about an incident like that that happened to him where he had a PayPal donation link up on his website and people uh, flooded him with donations from stolen credit cards. Now, obviously, that money gets taken back. But the other thing that happens is that the credit card companies charge a $20 fee. Oh. And so on, in addition to not getting all the fake money, Krebs got a $20 fee for each of the fake transactions. Uh-huh. That's a and nice one. Drained all of his money. Yeah. Luckily, he knows somebody that works at PayPal uh, and was able to get a temporary solution to that problem put in. Mm. Mm, that's good. Well, all right, Alan, let me take a moment and tell you about some... Ways to save money. That's Ting. Yes. Go to techsnap.ting.com. That's our landing page. And it'll give you a $25 credit off a Ting device or $25 in service credit if you have a Ting-compatible device. And you just might because they're on CDMA and GSM. So you get to pick and choose. They have a really fantastic dashboard. 
that allows you to manage your account. But what I really love, $6 for the line. $6 for the line. You can get a GSM SIM, put that in one of your devices. It's $6. When that thing needs data, you just pay for what you use. If it needs to make a phone call, you pay for what you use. Text messages, pay for it when you use it. And the rates are great. In fact, it's really easy to get an idea of where you're sitting at, too, because their dashboard gives you almost like fuel gauges. So you just log in, super simple snapshot. It really is something. Uh, Kind of a personal uh, landmark milestone for me. Uh, I'm coming now in like on three years of Ting. And uh, I now officially have Wi-Fi in the place where – so I have three Ting lines, right? And one phone was kind of the phone that cost me the most. And it would bring bring my bill for three phones up to $45. Woo, $45. Uh, So it wasn't really a big deal. But I – I do like kind of figuring things out and sort of just seeing where I can get a good deal. So I'm like, you know what? There's this one phone that if we put Wi-Fi in this place where they're on the phone all the time, uh, I bet we could drop it down. And, you know, usually the holidays is where it would go up a little bit. You know, it evens out for the rest of the year over the other 11 months. But this holiday for three smartphones, our Ting bill, $27. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. And it's really because... My we, bill for one phone is like $100 a month. And it's really because... And I only, don't use it. Yeah, well, we only made a couple of calls uh, this month because everything else was done over uh, the Wi-Fi connection. And some months it's not that low. Uh, but it really, you know, that actually makes it... So if I did, like, have... Like, if, when I'm going to go down to scale, sure, I won't, I won't be on Wi-Fi as much. But it really all is so, in the long run, I save so much money. And if you want to get an idea, kind of like what, what you would save, because, it, it, you know, it's going to depend on what you're paying now... If you go to techsnap.ting.com, they have a savings calculator. You can plug in your current usage and see how much you would save by switching to Ting. And then if you just get savvy, like you start picking CDMA or GSM, or you get the right phone, it's a great value. You can, it's amazing what you can. So as an example. So you don't all want these, to know what's different. So I literally seven minutes of phone calls. Put this in a little calculator and make me cry. Seven minutes of phone calls, <laughs> 100 megabytes of data, and... Fifty text messages. Should I put that in there? That's that <laughs> was my entire December. Okay, so for which seven, I paid seven minutes. Canadian. How many text messages? A hundred. Okay. Uh, yeah, I can like alerts and stuff. And how many megabytes? Yeah. About a hundred. And what, I've never ever gone over a hundred megabytes in a month. Okay. Even while roaming in other countries. Okay. And then what was the uh, what was the bill? Before, I was paying before ninety seven dollars. Ninety seven dollars. Okay. So we'll see. We're going to calculate uh, your Ting savings, Alan. If you were to switch to Ting by going to techsnap.ting.com, Alan, Jude, you would save $1,968 in two years. If I switch to Ting, look at that. <laughs> that would more than pay for the phone. <laughs> yeah, well, I was just going to say, too, like... And also, that doesn't include device fee, because I bought the, uh, my handset outright. So check this one out right here. Now, if you just want a feature phone just to make calls or, or get texts... $63, the Ansatel OneTouch Fling is kind of like a classy-looking phone. It actually has a camera, too. $63, plus they're going to throw in $25 of service credit, and there's no contract, nor the termination fee, and you own the phone. Uh, if you want to step up to, like, a nice Android phone with no contract that's unlocked, pay for what you use, Nexus 5. They have the black and white one, $190. Unlocked, this is the, this is the last year's Nexus 5. $190, you own it. And you only pay for what you use, no contract. TechSnap.ting.com. Of course, they got the 6P, they got the iPhones, they got all that stuff. Check out their blog, too. They have a blog post up there about why Ting doesn't have a music streaming, and I think you might find that kind of interesting. TechSnap.ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. TechSnap.ting.com. 
So I I I've been have I have been following this Juniper story uh, from the perspective of CNN. I've been watching it through the lens of how they report on it. And uh, last night in the Unfilter show, I ran a clip where CNN attributes uh, Juniper's all the saga around Juniper to Iranian hackers. Iranian hackers broke into the Juniper network and implanted spyware into the Juniper routers to spy on Americans. Is I have the clip, played it last night. I'm guessing that's what you're here to tell me all about. Kind of. Okay. We didn't actually know who did it, and okay. I kind of doubt it was Iran. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I, I've been wondering, too. We've been seeing some links coming to the subreddit saying that there's ties to the NSA. Well, yes, there's definitely a tie to the NSA, although it doesn't mean that it was the NSA that did this. Mm. It just happens to take advantage of something the NSA tried to do previously. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. I have heard uh, about it. So there are basically two exploits were found in uh, Juniper's screen OS. Right. Sorry, screen OS, which is uh, not what they use in every device. It's only for certain devices. Uh, but I believe I, it is their higher-end devices. Screen um, OS, at least when I was involved with Juniper, was like on the devices when you paid more money. Well, it's it's for certain types of devices, but yes, it is on the expensive ones. Okay. Uh, I think it's mostly for VPN type stuff. Okay. It's been a long time. Uh, so there basically there are two exploits. One was uh, an SSH exploit where you could log in as a certain user and uh, with a static password. Oh, good, good. That's so there was just nice. a user called uh, System and mm-hmm. uh, a password that you know wasn't obvious but could be gotten by just analyzing the firmware. Uh, basically, once it was patched. Um, people like HD uh, Moore over at uh, Rapid7 um, took the two the before and after binaries and diffed them and found basically what looked like a bit of assembly code was actually the password. Uh, no kidding. So it, it looked like it was code, but it was actually the password. So, you know, as you casually scanned over it, you wouldn't notice that it was, whereas if it had been, you know, words or just random letters, it would have stood out in strings. But because it looked like it was a bit of code that actually did stuff, uh, it was non-obvious. And the second one was uh, a way in which an attacker could passively decrypt all traffic sent through the VPN on the device. Uh, so basically, that guy, without having to have either of the keys from either end, hmm. could passively decrypt all the traffic that was sent through the VPN. Wow. Uh, and so that one in particular uh, was the one that a lot of analysis has happened on. But anyway, so on December 17th, Juniper posted the security advisory saying that uh, some of their products were affected by an unauthorized code in screen OS uh, that could allow a knowledgeable attacker to gain administrative access to net screen devices, which is knowing the secret password to log in, uh, <laughs> or to decrypt uh, VPN connections. Uh, that, means, that sounds like an attacker managed to subvert uh, Juniper's source code repository and insert a backdoor. Mm. Now, it's not clear whether someone actually managed to break in and insert some code or if the NSA paid someone that worked there to insert some code or what. Uh, We don't actually know, and it's not clear whether we will ever find it. Uh, But Juniper is looking into it, uh, Hmm, and we'll see. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then Juniper followed up with a slightly more detailed post uh, that noted that there were two backdoors, one for SSH uh, that may allow a knowledgeable attacker... uh, who can monitor VPN traffic to decrypt the traffic. Um, you know, either of these would be uh, very interesting for a nation-state attacker, but the latter, the VPN one, uh, is really more the nation-state type thing. Uh, so it turns out the way uh, the encryption for the VPN is done uses the dual EC random number generator. 
which is uh, an NSA effort to introduce a backdoor ah. pseudo-random number generator okay. uh, that gives knowledge of a secret key, allows an attacker to observe output from the random number generator, and then predict what the next number will be. Uh, so Very the bad. random number generator takes these two different values as inputs, and they're basically points on an elliptic curve, and that generates the output. But the NSA specifically designed this algorithm they tried to get everybody to use back in the day uh, so that if you knew this one secret, you could basically, when you're picking the points, you could pick one that was multiplied by this certain magic number that you kept secret to yourself. And then only with the knowledge of that would you be able to decrypt all the traffic. So basically it would make there be a second key that would decrypt all the traffic and only the person that knew that second key would be able to decrypt the traffic. So it's, mm. it's the quintessential backdoor crypto. Mm-hmm. Um, so they say that during the crypto 2007 rump session, uh, Niels Ferguson, who's a very famous cryptographer and, uh, Dan Shumov, uh, pointed out that, uh, if the points are not randomly generated, but carefully chosen in advance, the security of the dual EC, uh, DRBG can be subverted by the party doing the choosing, uh, effectively backdooring the random number generator. Uh, this is namely if uh, one chooses points P and Q such that Q is equal to P multiplied by E, uh, holds a value of E that is kept secret. It will allow a party that generates uh, said P and Q to recover the internal state of the random number generator for output uh, in a basic computationally cheap fashion, hmm. uh, basically giving you a backdoor into the random number generator. So basically, by looking at the encrypted data as it goes by and knowing that secret number, you can figure out exactly where in the cycle the random number generator is and tune yours to be in the exact same spot so you know exactly what input's going into the crypto algorithm so then you can basically undo the encryption. Uh, it says, what is unknown, however, is uh, what an attack would look like on the pseudo-random number generator uh, cascade employed by the Juniper screen OS. So in the past, uh, Juniper put out a knowledge base article explaining how they use dual EC. Okay. And they say, screen OS uh, does make use of the dual EC DRBG standard, uh, but is designed to not use uh, dual EC as its primary random number generator. ScreenOS uses it in a way that should not be vulnerable to a possible issue that has been brought to light. Instead of using the NIST-recommended curve points, it uses self-generated basis points and then takes the output as an input to the FIPS ANSI X.9.31 random number generator, which is a random number generator uh, used in the ScreenOS cryptographic operations. However, apparently starting in August 2012, uh, corresponding to release uh, 630R12, uh, Juniper started shipping ScreenOS firmware images with a different point Q. Uh, Adam Kalkil, uh first noted the difference after HD Moore posted the diff between uh, R14 and R15 firmwares. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is, uh, we can deduce from the recently, uh, recent security advisory and the fact that they reverted back to that old Q value in the past image this was the change uh, that was not authorized by them. So somebody went in and changed basically a constant number uh, for the random number generator that made it one that they would know the secret to decrypt it with. Right. Uh, apparently, Juniper only realized this recently and wasn't aware of it when they issued the original knowledge base article. Mm. 
The other one they have here is uh, static analysis indicates that the output of the dual EC generator indeed is not used directly, but rather only to reseed the uh, X9.31 RNG. Uh, besides the unused ECPRNG known answer test function, a function we call reseed system PRNG is the only one that references the ECPRNG generate output function. So the backdoor thing the NSA designed is only used to feed into a better random number generator. Uh, however, uh, after they wrote that in their post, somebody, uh, William Pinkackers, sorry, I can't pronounce that, Pinkers, Pinkers, Pink Pancakes, uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> pointed out that the reseed system PRNG function sets a global variable, system PRNG buffer position, to 32. Uh, this means that after the first invocation of this function, the random number generator, uh, the for loop right after the reseed call uh, system PRNG gen block never actually executes. Hence, the ANSI X9.31 PRNG code is completely non-functional, and the backdoored EC code ends up getting used. So there might be you know, a second spot in the code where somebody made a subtle change to stop the crypto from working, or it could have been an honest mistake that's been there the whole time. We will uh, never know the answer to that one, Alan. Yeah. So it says, uh, if it wasn't the NSA who did this, we have a case where the U.S. government backdoor effort, dual EC, laid the groundwork for someone else to attack U.S. interests. Interesting. Which would be a very good argument against backdooring any future crypto. Specifically right it now. it turns out, if it wasn't the NSA that broke into Jupiter, Juniper, then someone else who did piggybacked on the NSA's previous attempts yeah. to do this. Yeah. So certainly this attack would have been a lot easier given the presence of a backdoor-friendly RNG already in place and, uh, and have not even discussed the SSH backdoor, which Wired notes uh, could have been done by a different group entirely. Anyway, I say, uh, the backdoor certainly isn't no bus because Foxit IT, uh, the Dutch company, claims to have found the backdoor password in only six hours after it was announced by analyzing the firmware. Yeah. Uh, and they point out that no bus in this case is an intelligence community term meaning nobody but us. So, you know, a no bus backdoor means it's one that only works for us and not for everybody. <laughs> no bus. <laughs> it's kind of like no foreign, which means U.S. only, no foreigners. Yeah, yeah. That's a fascinating saga. The whole Juniper yeah, thing is really interesting. Yeah, and there's a lot more detail in the two or three linked articles in there. Yeah, in the show notes. Uh, Adam Langley from Google did a pretty good summary of the craziness because a lot of it kind of took place on Twitter and was hard to follow because uh, things are, you know, Twitter likes to put all the tweets back not in the right order. Yeah. And really annoying. Anyway, so he wrote a good summary and then linked to further work by the guy who we mostly quoted in this article. And then he got more information from another guy who read it and then built on the work. And <laughs> a lot of collaboration <laughs> happening, but it means it's all over the damn place. Yeah. So it was nice to have a couple of posts that uh, sort of bring it all together. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Mm, good read, Alan. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. So uh, I want to tell you about a service that a lot of my favorite open source projects have started using for hosting over 2015, and I think they're going to continue in 2016. That's DigitalOcean. And you can use our promo code SNAPOcean to get a $10 credit to go try it out. These are great, fast rigs up in the cloud, all using SSD for the disk I.O., fast 40 gigabit e-connections, data centers in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Germany and Toronto. It's really the interface at DigitalOcean that I love. You can get started in less than 55 seconds and pricing plans at $5 a month. They're going to give you a rig you can actually do something with, with 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. 
The control panel really allows you to do a lot of nice things very quickly. Deploy entire application stacks, try out free BSD, reload a machine, back up a machine, transfer a machine, destroy a machine, watch the console from boot all the way up to post using their HTML5 KVM. It's really nice. Try out DigitalOcean and use the promo code SNAPOcean. And once you get your machine deployed, go look at some of their tutorials. They have one up on uh, securing Nginx with Let's Encrypt on Ubuntu 14.04. That's pretty useful. They also have how to work with Docker data, data volumes on Ubuntu or how to install WordPress or how to use Prometheus to monitor an Ubuntu server. And it's not just Ubuntu they have tutorials for. They've also got them for FreeBSD, Debian, CentOS, CoreOS. It's a great service. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code SNAPOcean. Play around with their management interface and see what I'm talking about and support the show. I've got, I've got a, a DigitalOcean droplet that runs Minecraft, one that runs own cloud sync thing. Uh, BitTorrent Sync, Quasal Core, MB. The list is sort of getting kind of muddled in the back of my head because there's so many of them. That uh, and and of course the own cloud server doesn't just do own cloud too. Uh, I've I've been ex- I've been experimenting with an XMPP server in the past. It's got Cardav and Caldav on there. Obviously, it's it's so nice to have my own infrastructure on demand that I get full control over, root access, a great console, really good support. A huge community, tons of tutorials. It's perfect for me. It's probably perfect for you, too, for just learning, testing, or full-on production. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code SNAPOcean. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. And you can support the show by using that promo code SNAPOcean. And also, welcome to DigitalOcean and Ting to 2016, too. That's also very mm-hmm. awesome. People keep coming back to the TechSnap program because these are great sponsors for our audience. It really is great services. And uh, every single one of them on the show we use. Al, not so much with Ting, although you think he would if he was here in the U.S. I would if Ting would come to Canada. Yeah. I'd love that. But uh, obviously, it's IX. It's their fault, though. Yeah, I mean, it's, we, we are really happy. And I know if you guys try, try our sponsors, you'll be very happy, too. So big thanks to DigitalOcean. And thanks to you guys for using the promo code SnapOcean. So you already kind of teased it. Uh, but episode 123 of the BSD Now show is out. ZFS in the trenches. For those of you who love your ZFS talk, this has mm-hmm. got to be one to watch, I would think. Yeah, it's a great interview with someone that uh, has supported a lot of different people's ZFS pools. You know, I've done a lot of work on my own, but I haven't touched that many other people's pools. Mm-hmm. But Josh is so he's seen a lot of master things. at that. Yeah, he's seen a, he's seen a lot of pools. He's a, mm-hmm. he's a ZFS pool boy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I also want to just plug the Linux Action Show and last 400 scale uh, 14X shirt. Uh, I know this isn't Linux Action Show, but we are trying to uh, sell a few of these to get down to scale. So the that blue way... one looks really nice. Yeah. You know what, Alan? We're doing something new, too, is we also have an EU campaign page. So teespring.com slash last 400 and then slash last 400 EU, you get the EU specific one. And Alan, I, I'm a little mad because in the EU, there's a tote bag. Come on, a TechSnap tote bag. Like, you know, when you go to conferences and stuff, there's like a ton of handouts and stickers, and yep. and this is perfect for that. Uh, also, I happen to have a tote bag now that I just bring my lunch back and forth in, but uh, I, they don't have them in the U.S. Now, if you're in the U.S., you could order from the EU page, but uh, I'm, so I have, I'm going to have Angie order me three from the EU page. <laughs> so if you want to help our effort to get down to scale, and if we get enough funding, uh, we're going to throw a little uh, party. It depends on how, much, how many shirts we sell. At teespring.com slash last 400, we'd love to throw a party to celebrate the Linux Action Show's fourth, 400th episode while we're down in Pasadena. So we could use your help getting there. Uh, that's and also a way to get yourself some swag. 
Okay, well, the news is all done. We have a great feedback segment, so let's wrap it up, Alan. It's time for the TechSnap Feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or pop in that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website, or even better, a thread in our subreddit at techsnap.reddit.com, which I don't think we have any this week. Uh, um, Daniel writes in, Alan, with our first email. He's got a grayless mystery on his hands. He says, he says, hello there, Chris and Alan. I had a user over the holidays who had an issue with sending email. After grepping through the mail log, I found that the email had sent and had been held as part of a gray listing policy, and a few minutes later, the message showed it was delivered okay. The problem was not exactly gray listing, but rather the message was stuck in the user's email client, K9Mail, outbox, and would not send at all. It wasn't until the user copied the text and cleared a whole new e- and created a whole new message, pasted in the copied message, and then sent the new message again. No sign of the first message ever showing up before the second message was created. Do you know of any ideas as to what might be causing messages being stuck in an outbox of an email client? Are they, is there a, a debugging trick you could share? Any thoughts would be welcome. Keep up the great work with all the Jupiter Broadcasting shows, and have a happy good new year. Uh, in normal setups, you would only have grade listing between mail servers. So uh, the submission side, where like the client sends to a server that it authenticates to, you don't do grade listing there, because otherwise you get that temporary failure message, and it never leaves the outbox of the client. So it's not clear from your description whether the mail server they were trying to actually send to initially uh, blocked it for gray listing, yeah, or if it happened after. Because and it could be anything. If it's a go on the outbound from a mail client, it could be anything from a connectivity to user authentication problems. Yeah, and it could also be you know ISPs trying to interfere with things. We've heard of other, like especially oh, yeah. phone carriers. Remember, we're mm-hmm. like trying to strip the SSL out of it and stuff. Yes, I do remember that. Um, but yeah, normally you would definitely want to make sure that when clients are sending email from the email client program to the mail server that will then go and deliver it to the final destination, that that's not being gray listed, only mm-hmm. uh, the other way around. Sean writes in uh, with top to bottom security. He says uh, he's been thinking about this a lot. He's got a recent firewall with packet filter on it. But in the broadest sense, he wants to know how do you keep a, secure, a network secure from top to bottom? I mean, if you deploy any kind of antivirus solution, that makes uh, what makes you go with one over the other? Do you just hit up AV uh, comparatives, AVG, Kaspersky, etc.? Are all names I hear favorably from time to time, but nothing can be common sense. What do you do for your users, and what do you roll out? Also, on products like CCleaner, which aren't really security at all, is it, it just seems like every tech I know deploys it. Is it really all that useful? So he's got a few questions on ways to protect from, like, at the network level and at the user level, Alan. So then maybe we give him a few tips. Uh, yeah. Uh, so with something like PFSense, you can install uh, Squid that can, and then configure it to do things like uh, block advertisements or scan things as they come through. Uh, to try to block things that are known to be bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cutting uh, down on stuff that comes in from the web, especially if the clients are running Windows, would be mm-hmm. a huge step. Not using Internet yeah. Explorer, also very beneficial. Reducing the usage of Flash on the end user's computer, keeping the end user's computers patched and current. Uh, if you do those things, then your antivirus you pick is going to be less important. Just pick a good one. Everything you yep. mentioned in your email is fine. I've, uh, the one I've deployed the most is Nod32 and AVG out of the list that you sent in. I haven't deployed a lot of Arviera or whatever it is, or F-Secure. Yeah, um, and then for like CCleaner and Malwarebytes and so on, 
I don't know. I don't run Windows clients. <laughs> I, I don't run a corporate type network you know, anymore. I actually, I, run, I actually, like, I'm going to take, I'm going to be that guy. I actually like CCleaner. I think, I mean, yeah. I haven't used it for a couple of years, but when I did use it back in the day, I, I thought it would do a decent job. There's another one that starts with an A something, and I know the guy that wrote it. He's a geek shit IRC yeah. guy. Oh. Works at one of the virus ven- uh, AV vendors now, but back then he just wrote it as a tool for. Uh, stuff like that. Um, so for genuine top-to-bottom security, I have it's it's actually really super simple. Deploy devices you have control over. Deploy devices you can update and maintain. And deploy devices you are comfortable managing so that way you do all of those things. If you follow mm-hmm. those three criteria, you're going to be in a better position than almost every other network out there. If you get into something that you can't install updates on, if you get into something that doesn't give you flexibility like Alan mentioned, like maybe blocking ads... That makes it more difficult to make your network more secure. So if you follow those three things, you're probably you're probably set. Uh, yeah, like I don't know. Here, all the machines in our corporate office are PCBSD, and so they don't get malware. Yeah, there. I mean, there is some there is some serious consideration there too. Is ask yourself, does the end user's task require Windows? Now, obviously, if there's an application requirement that requires that you use Windows, well, yeah, that's that's a given. I just happen to have control of, you know, the people that we hire at Scale Engine are working with Unix, and so... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't... We don't have anybody at JB that runs... Well, we might have... Our newest remote editor might run Windows, I think. Oh, I guess Rekai has a Windows machine. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I'm just thinking like I'm just thinking like here that works like that does like production work. Never gotten spyware on my Windows. Yeah, I I I have had Windows machines for years, and the only time uh, in the past when I would have uh, antivirus on them would be if a, cro- a contract required it, like to be on their network. Otherwise, why would I bother? You just it, it really does come down to common sense, and you know, not downloading crap, not using Internet Explorer, things like that. Friend yeah, of, uh, but you know, in the in the end, you're stuck with if your users are going to keep falling for the same. Thing clicking on bad ads and so on because it's like, oh, see tennis players' boobs or whatever. Then <laughs> it's true. I might click that. Uh, all right. So a friend of the show, Michael Dexter, writes in. He says, "Hello, Alan and Chris. I'm researching a real-world silent data corruption, aka a little bit rot, and would like to ask you and the TechSnap audience for suggestions on large data sets that are widely mirrored that everyone has. My first thoughts are." Popular Linux distro DVD images, mini-mirrors, often with checksums, so that'd be very handy. Uh, Project Gutenberg or Wikipedia snapshots. I remember them, you know, they did that to, like, a one laptop per child, and there's a lot of apps that do that. He says, my plan is to download the same data from, say, 10 to 20 mirrors, each of which presumably has different OS file systems to some degree. Uh, statistically, out of the N should be experiencing bit rot unless they are all super aggressive about verifying their checksums. Can you suggest other reference data sets that everyone has? And what is uh, Michael Dexter's uh, Twitter handle? Uh, I think it's Michael Dexter. I thought so, too. I, was, I wasn't sure if you remember. So that would probably be a good way to get it to him is to mm-hmm. tweet him uh, at Michael Dexter and uh, see if you can help him out because he's working on a problem. And I thought that was uh, – that's actually yeah, – it's like, you know, if if we knew there's this one file that everybody has and if everybody ran Child 256 on it, how many people would come out differently because their hard drive has mangled it? Yeah. Do you think uh, – I mean, I do, those – that the one thing about like uh, – uh, oh, Michael Dexter. Let's see, it's not at Michael Dexter. It's uh, oh yeah, it is at Michael Dexter. Uh, he's, he's just changed it to Rolla Dexter as his display name right now, which is yes. very funny. Uh, well, that's because <laughs> that's my nickname for him because he he's the BSD Rolodex. He knows everyone and can make introductions. Uh, so I only think about those particular data sets, like the distros and stuff like that. Is they might actually be the ones that are most aggressive about checksumming. 
you know, that might be, so that, that could be the only problem there. Yeah, uh, mirrors are usually pretty good about that. And yeah. especially, you know, if you use rsync, it's going to be silently corrected and you won't know that you had mm-hmm. a problem there. But if you guys uh, have some issues out there, uh, tweet them. Let them know, at Michael Dexter. But yeah, uh, if, uh, anybody has uh, an idea of a file lots of people didn't have that we could get everybody to check and from all over find the place. how many people might have corrupted versions of it and not even know it. Yeah, be interesting to know that. So uh, now for the feedback segment, something a little new. A series of tweets from John Lambert. Uh, one out of ten. Uh, and the first is, it's not the bite that makes a spider successful. It's the web. Turn your infrastructure into a sensor. Uh, I don't know what he means by that, but it sounds cool. Uh, basically, by getting your logs from different places, like the event log off each host machine, your firewall and proxy logs, DNS, remote access, NetFlow logs, the authentication logs from your domain controller, your email logs, your communication logs, your all your different logs into some kind of system where you can actually mm. search mm-hmm. them. Yeah. And, oh, boy. And learn things from your logs instead of just, you know, having all these log files you never read. <laughs> so that, you know, when you find out that something was happening on this host, you can then cross-reference the logs from that host with the firewall to figure out where it may have actually come from and with, you know, the Active Directory server to see what user they might have actually logged in as. Yeah, that's that. good. That's, here's another one. Speaking of that, adversaries need credentials more than malware. Avoid the sins of Windows credential administration. Dun, dun, dun. Mm-hmm. And he's got an infograph here of the sins of credential administration for Windows, uh, which is... Yeah. You know, sins of abdication. Don't leave your the local accounts completely unmanaged, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the sins of trading, you know, excesses credential lifetime to reduce service interruptions. Right? You don't want to have accounts that don't expire for three years. Uh, you know, you want something you want to set the expiration to happen fairly frequently and just you have to bump it, you know. And obviously that eventually somebody forgets to do it one time and then somebody can't log in and they get yelled at and then it gets set to a really long number and then mm. that person leaves and their account stays active for a year afterwards and then it gets compromised, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the sins of wishful thinking. Uh, being uh, enamorous of two-factor authentication but forgetting that, you know, uh, if the two factors aren't different enough, then it's the same as one factor, right? Right. And uh, since you know, securing servers but not the admin workstations is also a problem. You know, people spend all this time securing the server, and then you know their laptop is full of malware, and you get yeah, the password I'm, that way. I'm reminded of this uh, one client that had this really super secure data center with dual door entries, fingerprint uh, badges, uh, full-time staff in the data center. And then you go out to the common, just like, you know, a cubicle area where just everybody works and people will Mm -hmm. like, if there's like a party and people bring food, like that, there's a table out there, everybody eats at. And, and just right next to one of the cubicles right there was a remote KVM console to all of the servers in that secure data center, just right there that anybody in the entire building could sit down at. On the wrong side of the mantra. And then they installed another one later on at the other, at the, in another cubicle, so there was two out there that were just right connected to all of those servers, and it, none of that security mattered. It was, it, I just remember watching them going, but you that, don't get it. On the wrong side of the mantra. Yes, yes, yes. Well, you know, it made it much easier because... Uh, there was the problem was there was so much security to get in the data center that it was inconvenient, and so the techs wanted to be able to check something really quick on the consoles from their desks. And since that's where everybody in the business worked at, they just took a couple cubicles and did that. <laughs> All right, Al, you ready for number three? Threat mm-hmm. intel can be rewarding, but prepare, but beware the perils of the journey. Beware of the perils, per, perils, perils, geez. perils. Yeah, yes. into threat intel journeys. Yeah, so it's like. You know, InfoSec is failing to protect us, right? No firewalls is going to stop 
the Chinese hackers, whatever. Mm. Let's change to using threat intel instead. And then you can see tumbling off the ledge of yet another black box. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, InfoSec is very generic. And they have uh, the, the cyber hawks with silver bullet talons. <laughs> and the uh, lost in the wilderness of APT paranoia. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, if you're targeted by the Chinese, that's a thing. But at the same time, you know, maybe you're... Uh, um, not that high on their list. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And maybe that's not the one you should be worried about. You should be right. worried about, you know the uh, Russian cyber gang that's out to steal your credit cards. <laughs> They're drowning in the IOC rapids. <laughs> and then uh, <clears throat> fall while climbing the rock face of talent sources, prioritization, and process integration. It's like having all the threat intelligence is great, but how are you going to use it? Who's going to read it all? Right. right. Yes. And, and then at the top of the it? hill is the, you know, successfully integrated strategic and tactical threat intelligence. All right, Mr. Jude, number four. Look for ways to get an early warning, the inside story of MS-0867. Mm-hmm. You know, exploit mitigation plus crash reporting equals early warning. Mm-hmm. Right? So if you have exploit mitigation, that means that when you try to do something like access memory you're not supposed to, the program crashes. That means that you will have these early warnings. So you can see here, the number of times this, uh, the crash happened for that MS-08067, you remember we covered the story like two months ago? Yep. Uh, but you can see there's little blips on the gra- graph there where the guys that were building the exploit were testing it. Mm. And then there's nothing for a while. And then Boom. it was out in the wild. Yep. And if they had been able to use that information early on, they might have uh, fixed it before it got out in the wild. Hmm. That's a, that, is a, that is an interesting story if you guys uh, didn't catch mm-hmm. that from a few weeks back. All right, number five, attackers... Seek to turn illegitimate access into legitimate access. Find them after they submerge. I like this it's, guy's use of language here, Alan. It's very uh, submerge. Yeah. Assume breach and defend against abuse of legitimate access. Right. Uh, so you know, normally your network is set up. Don't trust anybody from outside, but everybody from inside is completely trusted and can do whatever they want. But then the secretary's computer gets some malware on it, and uh, now you're in trouble. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, so, you know, defense against malware and exploits is, you know, uh, attackers bypass your security, but then at the bottom of you, you know, attackers use your security. Yeah. Because they, you know, have knowledge of your internal assets and, you know, defense complexity is complexity of authentication and access matrix and so on. Attackers evade defense by credential diversity. Mm-hmm. Interesting. By basically using two different secretaries' as logins, they can do whatever they want. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point, especially if they're motivated enough. Number six, the point of the kill chain is not only to stop attacks early, it's also uh, that the fight isn't over once they're in. Assume breach. Yes, basically assume your network's breached all the time and be looking to stop it. Yeah, that is probably a safe bet, uh, or at least a safe way to think about it. Why poor InfoSec teams stay poor? Understand the dangers of the capability chasm, Mm -hmm. or chasm. Yeah. Uh, so yes, uh, lost in the haze of minor incidents because their prevention approach doesn't uh, give you the white space to find the ones that matter. Basically, that's the target thing, right? Target had so many alerts that they just ignored them all and didn't see the alert that actually said that the right? bad guys had broke in. Super common. You know, you need to have 
the only the good ones getting to that point so that you can actually deal with them. There's literally never been like when I would one of the things in contracting I would do a lot uh, was would be pro- provide like temporary uh, IT guy or director depending on what the situation was it, when somebody would step out. So you'd have you'd have an IT person leave. Burnout was a big cause of it, and they would just be gone. Sometimes they would be cooperative, and they would uh, like work with me over email. Sometimes they'd come in, uh, you know, on contract for a couple of hours, and always, always, when it was one of the guys who quit because he burned out, every time you would go into like their 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 main admin's computer where they've got Thunderbird set up, checking email. And they would just have, like, all of these alerts. Oh, yeah, that, that's a normal thing. Yeah, that's just a normal alert. Just ignore that. Just ignore that alert. And they would have alert after alert after alert after alert in their inbox. They, oh, yeah, you could just, just ignore that alert. That's, that's not, I just filter that out automatically. And it was all, all was very common. And so this, that particular problem, like to say the target problem, I think is probably the largest spread problem with all logging systems. Like, even once you get a centralized logging system, it is just a ton of alerts and a ton of information to go through. It, it you can't you can't spend your entire day tweaking it all the time because large environments are constantly changing and that constantly requires going back and cleaning that stuff up. Or every time you deploy a new piece of software, or every time you upgrade a piece of software, you have to often adjust the way the logging and alerting works. It requires constant, constant attention. All right, Alan, you ready for the next one over there? Number eight. Prevention is the guardian of detection. Prevention creates the white space to detect and respond to the most important things. Prevention creates the white space. This side, uh, the gap in between the events. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, number nine. Wonder why COTS isn't enough? What's COTS? That's, uh, common off-the-shelf parts. Ah, Things you can you can wonder why the things you can just buy in the store don't solve your problems. Yeah, he says know who you're up against in the adversary matrix. Yeah, so basically, you know, the the stuff you buy off the shelf is only going to, you know, protect you against the bad guys that are using things they buy off the shelf, right? <laughs> if they're crafting their own attacks, then that something off the shelf probably isn't going to help you much. Yeah, very good. And the last one: watch for erroneous list thinking. In defending your network graph, and he links to a TechNet article. Uh, right. So this one's basically this is, you're thinking the thing that's exposed is always the terminal server. So you spend all your time protecting that and having this list of things that you need to protect against. Yeah. And then completely forgetting about these completely other things like all your high value assets that are actually not the terminal server. The terminal server very well might have access to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Interesting, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. This some of this stuff definitely seems very applicable to a Microsoft shop too. And yes. so, if uh, you have a Microsoft network out there, and you're wondering if you're committing but some of these sins, these any tweets corporate would be network, basically. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But some of the Microsoft stuff cited here might be extra useful for those of you that run an Active Directory network. So we'll have links to that in the show notes. Don't forget. We need your emails for next week's show. Please go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact, choose TechSnap from the dropdown, and send us in your questions, or you can email us directly, techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com, because we got the double snap. Double, double snap, which, man, which means we got double feedback segments we need to record, so we need double, double the questions. That's just how that sucker works, and we count on you for it. All right, Alan, with the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup are stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show. But we still want to give you some links to follow up on your own after the show. And some of these links came from our secret agent network over at techsnap.reddit. 
Facebook.com. Like this first one. Malvertising campaign used a free certificate from Let's Encrypt. Yep. Uh, well, you know, Let's Encrypt doesn't, you know, no SSL certificate, actually, only EVSSL ones, actually verify that you're a real business. You know, all the, the same, you know, if you bought that same certificate from Symantec or somebody else, all they do is verify you own the domain and the bad guys own the domain. It's not anything special. Uh, yeah. I guess it just keeps the cost down. Yeah. But, you know, the other SSL certificates were only like $9. It's not that big of a cost <laughs> in a malvertising campaign. Yeah, that's uh, true. And that's it's true. really not a big detractor to Let's Encrypt. I'm sure, you know, lots of press about it because Symantec would rather you paid them $1,000 for the certificate. Sure, yeah, right. But exactly. it really doesn't stop anybody from using the certificate to do bad things. Yeah. All right, Alan, tell me about code.he.net. Yes, so he.net is Hurricane Electric, happens to be my ISP. Yeah. They're the most peered transit provider on the internet and also the uh, biggest IPv6 network in the world. Oh. Uh, and they apparently would like to teach you to code for free. That's cool. So they're have, doing Perl, like, PHP, Ruby, Python, and SQLite? Plus HTML, CSS, JavaScript, jQuery, and XML. Dang, son. And they also have a separate uh, Get Certified as an IPv6 Expert course, huh. which is how it all started. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what they're into with this just because they're an ISP. Like, if, if you go to the front page of their website, just he.net, you can see what kind of ISP they are. Well, I, I think, I, yeah, I'm going to go there before. Their, I think their, their I, website still looks like it did when I first heard of them, when they had the tunnel broker thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for, that's their website. And that's what their website has looked like since, like, 1998. <laughs> the website gets updated regularly. But the I guess design, they just feel like, they feel like, hey, you know what, If you what? don't Good know enough. who they are or what you're doing, you don't want them. But if you would like to get some really good internet, they're the people to talk to. You know, you can see the little network map there. Yeah, yeah. They have a can I actually, can actually, I actually see yep. it? Oh, where did uh, it go? It, no, oh, scroll up on the side there in network map. Quick links. Yep, okay. Network. Ah, here, here we go. There. Getting me a PDF up in this business now. Yep, and you can see my house is connected to the one in Toronto. Boy, you're right in the good spot there, aren't you? I wonder if DigitalOcean is connected to that. Um, Possibly. Yeah, because I got IP6 there too. And, yep, and, and, uh, and I also have... In Portland. So uh, when you the, transit, so you go through Chicago, then or New York to come to to come to to come to Seattle or actually, Portland. Uh, I I think I actually yeah I think I go Chicago, Minnesota, Seattle. Yeah. Uh, but if that were to be down, I would be able to go you know Winnipeg, Calgary, Vancouver, Seattle. Yeah, that's really neat. That's that is that I love that they put that out there. Mm. Good for them. And uh, you can see the orange dots are ones they're planning on adding as well. Oh. But anyway, so so they're just they're a big backbone isp that's made up of really cool technical people and not a giant sales team or anything and no flashy advertising and no tv commercials and they put some free courseware out there they're like yeah let's just teach people to cook because that's that's how we'll get more customers i love that that. (laughs) but it looks like a really good resource so i just thought i'd point that out to people so here's a story that's kind of interesting microsoft got hacked and didn't tell anyone microsoft knew that chinese spies hacked hotmail users and didn't tell anyone or the people who had been monitored, and they knew for years. Reuters confirmed that Microsoft has agreed to change its hush-up policy about state-sponsored attacks, but they had a specific policy about state-sponsored attacks, so when this happened, they didn't alert customers. Yep. Uh, whereas Google had been saying, hey, it looks like you're being targeted by a government. Mm-hmm. They don't ever say which one because they 
could be wrong, right? But yeah. uh, they're like, it looks like you're being uh, – so Microsoft will now actually tell you when you're being attacked by a government and or what they think is a government and will give you a list of steps that might help you defend yourself. Now, this next roundup story is great for you nerds who want to get in arguments about the best way to break an air gap, which you know people out there are doing, Alan. You know yeah. they're doing that. So there are, basically this is a little table summarizing different ways of uh, getting through an air gap. So an air gap network is one where the computer with the secret information on it is not connected to the network. Uh, right. Like all critical and, infrastructure com- systems should be not connected to the internet. Any of those SCADA yeah. systems they say are vulnerable to by Chinese hackers shouldn't be connected to the internet. Like those well, but this was things. more like uh, you know the or Stuxnet. Do you remember the story of, of the uh, the Canadian spy who was spying for the Russians, and he worked at the the Canadian Navy, and so they had these computers in a separate room, yeah. and that's the only place where you could get sensitive information. And if you wanted to copy information in and out, you had to use a floppy disk. <laughs> And that was ways so a virus couldn't get back and forth. Uh, but anyway, so these are ways to get around it. Uh, so the first one is called AirHopper, uh, which actually transmit over the display cable. Uh, so like the cable that goes to the monitor or whatever. And it requires uh, an FM receiver and only allows data to be taken out at a maximum range of 7 meters. Uh, and it, you can get about 480 bits per second. So, so basically you just read by, right off the display cable. Uh, so you, not only read, but basically uh, software on the computer would encode like bits of noise or fuzz or something in the picture that was being displayed on the monitor. Uh, and then with basically in a way where you're looking at the monitor, you wouldn't see the difference. Slowly, your files are being transferred by a static on your monitor. Basically. Wow, that's great. Mm-hmm. Then we have the ultrasonic one, which is basically using the uh, speaker and mic in your uh, laptop or whatever. And that one allows bidirectional uh, of a range up to almost 20 meters uh, and allows 20 bits per second by basically making sounds at a high pitch that you can't hear. Uh, but by transmitting and listening, you can actually transfer files back and forth just very slowly. Yeah, 20 bits. <laughs> yeah, 20 bits per second is really slow. Yeah, but uh, not as slow as But, you know, if you're just one. trying to get out a text file and you have all day, you know. This next one's a little slower. Yeah, so uh, GS... GSMM is uh, basically uh, a modified memory chip that goes in the motherboard and has a GSM thing built into it. That's uh, and this uses a GSM baseband protocol to send data up to 5.5 meters away at 2 bits per second. 2 bits. Yeah. Uh, or there's another one where you can build dedicated equipment. Uh, uh, right. So the GSM baseband means you can download, the, you can receive the data on a phone. Yeah. Uh, if you build a special rig to receive this data, you can receive it at uh, up to 30 or more meters away at mm. 100 to 1,000 bits a second. Now we're talking right out of the RAM. Right out. So that'd be good. Yeah. And the other one is called Bit Whisper, uh, where the transmitter is actually either the CPU or GPU heating system. Bit so basically, whisper. using a thermal s- uh, sensor, you watch for patterns in the CPU or GPU heating up and cooling off. Uh, maybe while the computer's not in use. Uh, and, you know, you can only do that from a distance of up, you know, uh, less half a meter away. And at 0. .002 bits per second or 8 bits per hour. 8 bits an hour, Alan. Yeah. Uh, and you have to be basically have a little bug inside the case or something. Uh, hmm, but yeah, yeah. it would allow you to slowly exfiltrate information just by causing the GPU to heat up and cool down. I guess it was really important and he had a really long time. Yeah. Well, and I guess it depends how much data you're actually trying to get out, but... Yeah, that's true. 
Yeah. You got to be specific. Time Warner Cable warns that some customers' email addresses and passwords may have been compromised. They said they're working to reach out to customers who may have been affected. Approximately 320,000 customers throughout the markets that Time Warner serves could be impacted, Time Warner said. So it could be a nice big breach. We'll probably no more by next week's episode of TechSnap, I would think. Because it's happening today, I believe. Or, or Yes, and I think there's a related or unrelated one with Linode. So we'll have more coverage on that soon okay. so we know more. Now, what about these uh, – I love this story. I'm glad you caught this. The Dutch government backs strong encryption and condemns backdoors. Booyah. Yes. So we had lots of governments talking about uh, implementing backdoors. You know, we had the UK saying that, you know, uh, if companies don't give us information when we ask for it, then we'll put their – the people that run the company in jail or whatever. Uh, but the Dutch government has said, uh, we're against any idea of backdooring encryption and also gave half a million euros to the OpenSSL project to uh, continue beefing that up. I love that they're coming out and making this statement. Congratulations to them. Hoorah. Hoorah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's shift gears and talk about these latest tech support scams that seem to indicate that Dell has been hacked. Scammers know fo- customers' phone numbers, uh, PC serial numbers, the support history of the PC when they're calling up and they're like, hello, I am from Dell. And uh, it seems to indicate that Dell may have been hacked. Yeah, People so if, they, if they have your computer serial number and the service history, although at the same time, if they had malware on your computer... They probably wouldn't need to phone you, uh, but they could probably read the serial number somehow and then go to Dell's site, log in with the serial number, and get the service history. Uh, but in that case, they probably wouldn't phone you because they've already taken over your computer. Whereas most of the time, the point of these scams are to get either money out of you or get you to install some malware so right. that they can make money with your computer. Yeah, that too. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. Yes, uh, we'll have to see if Dell comes out and... Uh, Apologizes for that. See what, see, what, see what they say. All right, tell me about d- DNS reverse mapping. Right. Uh, so we, this is a conversation that came up in the FreeBSD chat room the other day uh, about, you know, on mail servers, you know, checking the reverse DNS of the uh, other side to make sure it was valid and not a spammer. And I actually mentioned that nowadays, spammers are probably the only person that have this set up exactly perfectly <laughs> because otherwise mail gets rejected because of it. Uh, but anyway, so this is uh, an Internet Engineering Task Force Best Common Practices Guide okay. on uh, using it, when you can use it, and when you shouldn't, and, and how it works, and so on. Very good. Mm-hmm. Nice find, Alan. Uh, now, here's another Brian Krebs before we get out of here today. Mm-hmm. Uh, fraudsters are automating Russian dating scams, taking advantage of lonely guys. The scam mm-hmm. package is assembled and marketed to Russian-speaking hackers with hundreds of email templates written in English in a variety of European languages. Many of the sample emails read a bit like Mad Libs or Choose Your Own Adventure text <laughs> featuring decision templates that include advice for ultimately tricking the mark into writing money to the scammer. Mm-hmm. Dirty, dirty play. Reminds me of uh, actually writing an engine like this. Not for that, but for... Uh, it would take news items about sports and then just fiddle some of the words. Yeah. Basically, you wrote it in such a way that for you know a certain word, you put basically what looked like regular expression syntax. You know, square bracket is in a list of words separated by pipes, and it would choose one of those words at random. And then by randomizing all the different sets of those in a sentence, you would make a whole bunch of different paragraphs. Let's compute like it's 1992. Compile. Oh, compile. (laughs) So this one's the source code for Wolfenstein 3D is now available. But in order to actually compile it, you have to build 
the infrastructure that existed in 1992. Sure. Right? So you need a DOS environment, so DOS box. You need to somehow find the Borland C++ compiler from 1992. <laughs> and if you actually want the graphics to work, because those weren't included in the source code, you need uh, the demo or um, like shareware version of Wolfenstein in order to steal the art assets out of it. Wow. Uh, and then uh, it even gets into some of the esoteric stuff with like the image format. Where they actually, uh, there's one a little bit further down where they show like a corrupted screen. Uh, but they found that the way that they optimized the graphics to make them take up less space uh, meant that unless they decoded them properly, uh, when you tried to play the game, it just looked like a garbled screen. Hmm. So there's somewhere. Here's the game, so we're probably getting there. Oh, gosh, there it is right there. Yeah, that's a little garbled. That takes me back. Yeah. Wow, look there's at There's the garbled one. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, so what happened? It's like, well, the way the art assets are done, there's like this index file, and then it points to these other files, and it wasn't quite being decoded properly, and then, yeah, with a whole diagram, and then uh, in the end, you actually could play the game. That is pretty neat. Wow, that takes and me back. Holy smokes. Mm-hmm. Got all the way there, though. They got to give them credit for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, so the chat room was talking about this one today during the show. Microsoft is killing off Internet Explorer 8, 9, and 10. They're gearing yes. up to get to uh, drop. have to use uh, Explorer 11 or the new Edge browser. Yep, IE 11 will keep receiving security updates. Uh, January 12th, only Internet Explorer 11. After after January 12th, 8, 9, and 10, lose upgrades. Yep. And uh, Internet Explorer 11 will remain for the entire life of Windows 7 and 8.1. Uh, also, if you're still using an older version of Windows, like Server 2008, uh, I think IE9 is the latest supported version, and they will continue to support that a little bit, maybe? I don't know. It's not hmm. very clear. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Been using but the Edge But there are browser? still some versions of Windows where you can't install 11. You use a lot of the Microsoft Edge browser there, Alan? Nope. Database configuration issues expose 191 million voter records. Yes, the interesting thing with this story, on top of the fact that it's 181 million voter records, is that nobody will claim that they own the database. Oh. Uh, you know, everybody that uh, they looked up and tried to figure out who owns it, and everybody's like, nope, not mine. I don't know. That's, that's not, not mine. Hmm. That's interesting. What's <laughs> interesting also is that when they examined it further, 18 million of the records contained uh, extra detail, like detailed profile information on the voter. Is that our next roundup story there, Alan? The 18 million targeted voter records exposed by the database there? Yes. Yikes. So there's a whole bunch of weirdness going on here. I do wonder what it is, but just completely exposed to the internet. The second database uh, uh, contains general voter profiles, which includes a voter's name, address, phone number, date of birth, voting record. Uh, Wow, that's not so hot. In fact, comparing Mm -hmm. records from both databases confirm they are essentially the same, but the dates on the second database are newer, as new as April 2015. Mm Huh. That's disgusting. That's really disgusting. Yikes. All right, next story in the roundup. The nerdy explanation for Facebook's 46 years ago glitch. I didn't even know about this, but I guess it's been coming up. So basically, if you were friends with someone for a long time on Facebook, and you might have seen this notice the other day, hey, you've been friends with this person for 46 years. Okay. What? I did not. I have not been on Facebook. 46 years old, and Facebook isn't either. Uh, Turns out, at some point, Facebook added a field to their database to keep track of when you became friends. But they didn't always have that. And so when they added the field, anybody you were already friends with, the date you became friends just became zero. And uh, so that meant when they went and made this feature and deployed it, anybody you happen to be friends with since before Facebook kept track of it, the time was zero. Well, in the way Unix tracks time, 
which is the number of seconds since uh, January 1st, 1970, um, that was exactly 46 years ago. It's <laughs> funny. That is great. That's, that's a great Yeah, that's a so great basically story, when that anniversary happened to come across uh, a couple of days ago, everybody that was friends with somebody that, that long on Facebook got this notification. <laughs> yep. Let's talk that's about one of my favorite things. Tape. The unreasonable effectiveness of adhesive tape. I love that's... gaffer's tape and duct tape and yeah, all of so it. Yeah, so this gets to talk about all kinds of tapes, like non-conductive tapes or specifically resistive tapes. I've been getting into heat tapes recently. Tell you what. Uh, tape that glows or the fact that in a vacuum, if you um, just take regular scotch tape, when you tear it apart, it generates an electric charge. Really? Yep. Yeah, I have uh, I have a whole bunch of heat tape because the water to the rover has been freezing. So I've been trying to fix, fix that problem. And it's not been a battle. It has been won. Thankfully, it's just stopped being freezing cold outside. So that temporarily <laughs> For a couple days. And then it'll be yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's wintertime. I'm, I'm glad you caught this because this feels appropriate for TechSnap. Software, the most vulnerabilities in 2015, Mac OS, iOS, and Flash. And it's probably because Mac OS well, is on top is, of a whole bunch of open source projects, right? That's part of it, yes. Uh, but the, part of it is also certain companies will do uh, basically fix a whole bunch of vulnerabilities and then give it one CVE number instead of one for each different vulnerability in order to keep their count on this list lower. Aha, uh-huh, yes. So, you know, just looking at the one with the highest number doesn't necessarily mean anything. Uh, part of it is also if somebody else finds a vulnerability, not the company that's making the software, uh, then they can cause more CVEs to get allocated. And mm, so. mm. Still, though, uh, not the headline you're used to hearing, right? Yep. Not, uh, not, not the typical it's interesting, headline. you know, uh, Chrome is up there. So is Firefox, Firefox CSR. Uh, Java is in there. You know, but like I think Java... You know, that number seems a little low for Java. Yeah, exactly. Because some of those are all crunched together in one number. Uh, Interesting, though, also Zen uh, is in there with 34, as many as OpenSSL. Uh, Cisco's iOS XE has 38. You know, even the Apple TV has a bunch. Yeah, yeah. Huh. We'll have a link uh, link to that list if you guys want to read it. Uh, Now, this is a story after my childhood. Gamer leaves his SNES powered on for 20 years to keep his games alive. Wow. Yeah, so you're thinking, hey, uh, NES games had the ability to save games, so you wouldn't have to leave them powered on like your older games. Uh, but it turns out a lot of, and some of those cartridges, it literally just had a little battery that kept the the memory alive. And after, you know, when the game's quite old, that battery could be dead. Oh. And that was what happened in this case. So when it wasn't powered on, the battery would quickly, you know, basically the battery didn't recharge well as over time. If you ever tried to use an old computer and the CMOS yeah. battery is completely flat. Yeah. Uh, well, they're not really, he doesn't want to go and tear it apart and replace it. I didn't realize they used game. a battery in them. That's amazing. Not all of them do. It depends on the game. I, uh, I guess it was cheaper to install a battery and a little bit of RAM than it was to buy. Have a permanent write space or whatever. Flash or something yeah. like that. Yeah. I remember uh, Super Ghouls and Ghosts didn't. Save your your progress, and so I I did this. I left it running overnight one time, so that way I didn't lose my progress. Yep. that's a great story. Ah, uh, but yes, so this one the, managed to keep it on for twenty years with only a couple of power outages, and I guess maybe the battery could help them get through that. Yeah, <laughs> my biggest problem with something like that is like, okay, so I'm going to hook it up to a UPS now. Yeah, so uh, you have to interrupt the power to hook it up. Yeah, how do you do that? You got to so start. You got to think ahead. I've seen some crazy ones where it's like, well, we'll just splice into the power cable and. 
add on. And that's 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 too much. That's too much for me. That's too much. You got to start ahead with the UPS. You just got to think ahead. All right. Uh, speaking of thinking ahead, six things to watch for in 2016. Anything catch your attention here, Al? Yeah. So this is threat post list of what they think uh, will be the big things in. 2016. They say the first one is advocacy is job one. Security researchers and advocates have certainly uh, grown up in the last couple of years. We've seen a lot more research papers and so on. Uh, emerging from the shadows of you know the IT labs and so on, researchers spurred on by the assault on crypto, privacy, and so on. And uh, specifically, we think you know with the Wasner Agreement and the attempts to to backdoor crypto and so on, that'll be more and more important for security experts and so on to fight against the government and just generally convince regular people that, you know, this is the way it should be done. Uh, also, you know, securing things, you know, even brushing off the whole Internet of Things fad. In general, we need to make all of our stuff more secure. We don't need our cars and our fridges and so on to be hacked. If we can't secure the computer systems that run our banks, we really want to put more and more computers in our cars, right? That's a good point. Uh, it's kind of a scary point. Uh, yes. The kids are not all right. <laughs> Uh, you know, there have been uh, major healthcare breaches, and we've seen breaches at uh, VTech and Hello Kitty and so on. And so we really want to be more careful with that type of stuff as well. Very cool. I like it. Yeah. I, I, uh, I think money it, on the move, things like Apple Pay and Google Wallet yep. are just going to increase the chances of yep. problems. And make your mobile devices even more of a target. Yep. And I think that the whole idea of uh, advanced persistent threats will kind of die down as more and more of these gangs will focus on being stealthy instead of having persistent access. Uh, basically, by only breaking in when they actually need to, they reduce the chance of getting caught, meaning that their method of breaking in will work for a longer amount of time. If that makes sense. I think so. Mm-hmm. All right. So we just a couple of left in the roundup, and I thought this one was kind of interesting. Follow-up, Uber is settling with the New York Attorney General over Godview. We talked about Godview before. The ride-handling company agreed to adopt more rigorous privacy and security practices and pay a $20,000 fine after an investigation prompted by a buzz a BuzzFeed news report. And we covered that newsfeed report where uh, they went in there, and when they, wa- they bragged about having Godview where they could watch where everybody was going and things like that. And turns out that was violating some privacy. <laughs> well, they actually like figured out that one certain customer was like cheating on her boyfriend or something by where and when they went somewhere and stuff like that. Yes, yes. Okay, Which obviously um, uh, would be great for, to be able to sell to an advertiser, right? <laughs> He's a, it's like, well, if we know this guy likes to cheat on his wife, we will show him ads for Ashley Madison. Right, and maybe we'll actually know. Hey, the other person that lives at this address, let's show them ads for something the opposite of that, <laughs> or whatever. Mm-hmm. The Internet of Touch will require a network revolution. Yeah, I'm not sure how they expect some of this to work. They're like, well, for for telesurgery type things to work, we need a latency of like one millisecond. I'm like, sure, how? But you can't beat the speed of light. Yeah. So how are you going to do that? Uh, of course, now, you know, anyway, so it talks a bit about the protocol and changes yeah. and so Yeah, Yeah, boy, they've been working on this for a long time. Yep. All right, and our last link in the roundup this week, web tune-up extension with multiple critical vulnerabilities over on Google security research. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is about, if I recall, AVG, AVG right? AVG antivirus. Yeah. yeah, so if you install AVG antivirus... Uh, a Chrome extension called AVG Web Tune-Up right. uh, with an extension ID of blah is forced installed on your system and uh, adds a bunch of APIs that can be exploited and uh, 
could be used to steal the cookies for avg.com to steal take over your account there or export your browser history. Yeah, I think uh, yeah. there's going to be a lot of uh, as a series where they've you know found something wrong with every virus antivirus vendor. Yeah, well, and a lot of Chrome extensions are exposing a lot of information too. This seems to be a bigger, bigger problem as well. So it's yeah, uh, you know, it's kind of Google stuck in this position of. Well, we want to make the Chrome extensions useful and, you know, give them enough functionality that you can actually do stuff. But at the same time, uh, you know, we need to, uh, you know, lock it down enough that it's secure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, you can find links to everything we talked about today in the show notes. Copious links, as it were, with notes as well. Don't Seven forget about the pages. emails. Seven pages. There you go. Don't forget about the emails at the contact page. Uh, and so we're going to be live early next week for the Double Snap, uh, starting at 11 a.m. Pacific time over at jblive.tv. 11 a.m., mm-hmm. which is? 2 p.m. Eastern, 1900 UTC. Okay. Okay. You go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to get that converted in your local time. If there's a story you didn't hear us cover, you can submit it over at techsnap.reddit.com. Also a great place to go to give feedback just to this episode for 248. Uh, and uh, like I mentioned, we want your emails. Okay, Alan, anything else we need to cover before we wrap up this week's episode? Are we all done? Uh, no, I think that's it. I think we're all done. Very good. It's good to be back in uh, 2016 doing the TechSnap show. Thank you so much for tuning in this week's episode of TechSnap. And we'll see you right back here next week. Mm-hmm.